Well, if you're standing from a certain vantage point, you could see them coming from all around. This way and that, they were climbing rocky hills, probably in groups of families and friends. They were coming slowly at first, and they eventually converged at one point. Some of them weren't certain that they could believe what they were seeing, and so they kept coming, they kept looking, they kept wondering, and though they couldn't believe at first, at least some of them couldn't, yet there he was. The risen Lord Jesus Christ, standing atop a mountain by the Sea of Galilee. Over 500 of Jesus' followers had congregated around the Lord Jesus Christ. And they came and they saw Him after His resurrection. And He issued at that time what has for centuries now been dubbed the Great Commission. The marching orders of the Church of Jesus Christ. And he said, as recorded in Matthew 28, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, the main verb in this great commission is not the word go, In fact, it could easily be translated as you are going in whatever capacity of life that you've been placed in. Then we get to the main verb, the imperative, the command, make disciples, literally make learners. All who would follow after Christ, these learners would be those who would obey Christ and who would follow him in all of his ways. And for centuries now, and you've been the beneficiary of this, Christians have been carrying out the Great Commission. Making disciples, making learners. We know that this is the case because you're here and I'm here. And so there have been the faithful. God has always raised up faithful men, faithful women to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. But in the same way that Jesus promised, and we saw this this morning, to raise up the wheat and the tares together, the true believers and the false believers together, in the very same way, so also has the true gospel And every manner of false gospel gone out together as well. And in the realm of false gospels, you have the the whole spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, you have the flat-out aggressive false gospels being promulgated by pseudo-Christian religions such as Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, Roman Catholic religion, Islam, all which claim a belief in Jesus Christ. And yet their king is not the Jesus of the Bible, And salvation is by doing good things to please God on their made-up version of Christianity. But on the other end of the spectrum, this end over here would simply be the the aggressive false gospel. On this other end, you you have perhaps extremely well-meaning people. You would have those who claim to follow Christ and perhaps are even Christians. And they have a, a yearning to tell others about Jesus, about following Christ. And yet their knowledge of the gospel is so limited and so basic that they end up inadvertently giving an inadequate gospel. Jesus loves you. That's an incomplete gospel. Read John 3.16. That's an incomplete gospel. 
Ask Jesus into your heart. That's an incomplete and an inaccurate gospel. Jesus just wants to be your best friend. That's an incomplete gospel that denigrates the person of God. And yet these are the most common phrases, the most common understandings we have in the church of the gospel of Christ. And so in our well-meaning eagerness to share Christ with those around us, it's imperative that we get the gospel right. And that's what I'd like to talk about is getting the gospel right. Now, the gospel of Jesus Christ is clearly eternal. It's clearly divine truth. And one of the ways we know this is that it's simple enough on the one hand that a child may understand it and come to faith in Christ. And it's complex enough on the other hand that scholars and theologians have been trying to plumb the depths of the gospel for 20 centuries. And we haven't gotten there yet. And so we don't want to oversimplify the gospel. That means it's not the true gospel. And neither do we want to present the gospel in a way that it takes a PhD to understand what we're talking about. We want to just present what the word of God says. Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15, to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And one of the best ways you can be prepared is to have your heart saturated in the truth of the gospel so that you get the gospel right and you don't have to really think about it as much as you just reflect what is already in your heart. One of the most stunning passages, I think, in all the New Testament, which helps us to do just this, to get the gospel right, is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I'll ask you to turn there. 2 Thessalonians 2, and we're going to look at verses 13 through 17. And what's so amazing about this short text is that it's written to the young believers in the city of Thessalonica and It's absolutely packed with gospel truths. It's just like a superfood almost of truth. So we'll read the whole text and then we'll take it apart piece by piece. 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 13. The Apostle Paul says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us, and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Paul gives us here in these very succinct, just power-packed verses, he gives us what we often call the doctrines of grace, the understanding of salvation, God saving us from sin. And he gives us what is really nothing short of a miniature survey of these doctrines of grace, a biblical soteriology, a doctrine of salvation. And so what I'd like to do is just using this text, do a a flyover, kind of a survey of the doctrines of grace that the Apostle Paul presents here. And so there's a few, so we're going to get started. We'll start with, first of all, the doctrine of grace itself. The doctrine of grace itself. Verse 16 tells us that God's love and eternal comfort and good hope are through grace. Grace is the core foundation. It's every facet of our salvation from sin is dependent upon grace. In the Old Testament, one particular Hebrew word speaks of an action 
from a superior to an inferior without any claim for gracious treatment. In other words, it's to act in a kindly manner regardless of whether somebody deserves it or not. It, it speaks of a heartfelt response by someone who has something to give to the one who has a need. The most common Old Testament word for grace is translated loving kindness or mercy or favor. And it has a very strong covenantal emphasis in that the stronger has made a covenant of kindness with the weaker. There are promises that have been made. In the New Testament, the concept of grace speaks of showing unmerited favor and kindness. It can even mean to pardon the guilty of their sin. That's what grace is. Now, why do we need grace? Well, because like every human being since Adam and Eve, you and I are lawbreakers. We have broken the law of God. We have broken the holiness of God. We've missed the mark. In fact, this is a concept the English Bible translates with the word sin. We missed the bullseye. We we're short. We we're estranged from God. God was rightly furious with us and with our sin. And we're headed toward rightful justice at the hand of God himself. Why is this? Well, Jesus said in John 3, 6, that that which is born of flesh is flesh. Meaning you are born of your father, Adam, and you are therefore a sinner like him. His sin has been passed from generation to generation. And what was our state? We were willfully and purposefully violating God's standards, violating God's laws, his statutes. From the time we were old enough to make basic decisions, from the time we were old enough to know right from wrong. The question is sometimes asked, is there an age of accountability? The Bible seems to say yes. Isaiah 7.16 speaks of a child who is old enough to refuse the evil and choose the good. The problem is, is that we're sinners. We don't choose the good. We don't. And what we deserve is God's eternal wrath. And so it's the, it's the grace of God. It's the loving kindness of God, which is the base reason that we may even receive salvation in the first place. Without grace, we're doomed. And why is that? Because we would have received what we deserve, but grace has given us that which we do not deserve, forgiveness of sin and a future with Christ. And so it, it has to start with grace. And I think you'll see that the rest of these doctrines all hinge on the doctrine of grace. But the Apostle Paul here also presents the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election. Verse 13 starts with a contrastive conjunction, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you. That points us out to a distinction. And here's the distinction. He's making a comparison between these who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. Look back with me at verse 10. With all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So there's a juxtaposition here. Those who had pleasure in unrighteousness, verses 10, 11, and 12, and now verse 13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. What is this choosing here? Well, that choice is in contrast to the strong delusion given to the unbeliever in verse 11. Titus 3, 5 tells us this is not on the basis of good works, this is entirely divine initiative. There's no sense of teamwork here at all. This is the only place that the Apostle Paul uses this particular verb to describe divine election. He uses a different word in Ephesians 1.5 where God 
predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Predestined means to mark out beforehand, to mark something out. In the previous verse, in Ephesians 1.4, he uses a word meaning to pick or to select for yourself. We translate it chose or elected. Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Here, when it says in verse 13, God chose you, this is a verb form meaning he chose you for himself. This is about him. It is for his glory. The salvation is taking for himself worshipers, creating worshipers for himself. Now, interesting little note here. Here in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul calls the believers in Christ the first fruits to be saved. This is reflective of the Old Testament feast of first fruits or Pentecost as it came to be known later. God commanded that his people first present the the first part of their harvest to acknowledge that he's the one who brought that harvest. And it's not coincidental, of course, that Pentecost is the day that the church of Jesus Christ, as we know it today, was born. The first fruits of the harvest of faith in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Christ is called the first fruits of resurrection of the, the full eschatological harvest, so to speak, of all who will be resurrected. First fruits can also be used to speak of the first converts. But I want to make a little note here. In the original Greek text, first fruits is one Greek letter off from meaning from the beginning. From the beginning. And as a matter of fact, there are major Greek New Testament manuscripts that record this as from the beginning. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you from the beginning to be saved. The translators of the United Bible Society's Greek New Testament, which is really the standard Greek New Testament today, they preferred first fruits really for only one reason, that Paul uses the idea of first fruits six other times. That's the only reason. But the idea of first fruits doesn't really have an obvious connection to this particular context. It doesn't make as much sense. But from the beginning makes total sense because this is God's choice from eternity past. And look at verse 14. To this he called you to our, through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's eternity future. So he called you from the past to get you to the future. And this also lines up nicely with Ephesians 1.4. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And so I would prefer from the beginning. And so clearly God's choice had nothing to do with you. Why is that? Because you hadn't done anything yet. You had done nothing. Had nothing to do with how kind you are, how smart you are, how receptive you are, how wonderful or good looking you are. When God made that choice, you weren't even born. In fact, when God made that choice, the universe wasn't even born yet. But we could take it back further than that. God is all-knowing. What that means is that he's never learned anything. He's never added to his knowledge. And so it's very reasonable to assume that the idea of from the beginning and from the foundation of the world is a human way for us to understand. You ready for this? That you have always been chosen by God. To use a double negative, you have never not been chosen. You've always been God's choice. And what were you chosen for? The elect 
We're chosen, verse 13, to be saved. And the comprehensive plan of God to rescue us from the self-inflicted and Adam-inherited eternal consequences of sin, this is completed in our final homecoming with the Lord. That what He chose in the past will be consummated in the future. Now I want to give you three important side notes about the doctrine of election. This is as good a time as any to talk about these. Three little side notes. The first one is that the apostles taught election in a variety of contexts and settings. They taught election in a variety of contexts and settings. The New Testament teaches election in Romans 8, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 Peter 2. All of these in the context of persecution, of the suffering of the saints. The authors are giving assurance of God's election in love in situations where it might be tempting to doubt the certainty of your salvation. This might be true of new believers, that when you suffer in life, you might think that God has stopped loving you. But the doctrine of election gives security. The New Testament also teaches election, for example, in the book of Hebrews and in Second Peter, in the context of warning the readers against apostasy, of not coming all the way to Christ. Second Peter 1.10 says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. And so the apostles taught election in a variety of contexts. Second side note, the doctrine of election is a motivation to fulfill the Great Commission. It's a motivation to fulfill the Great Commission. Many have said that if you believe the doctrine of election, that God has already chosen who's going to be saved, then you're not motivated to evangelism. Church history would tell us, though, that the greatest evangelists of all time always believe the doctrine of election. It's motivation. The Apostle Paul himself showed what the means by which God connects the elect with the gospel is, is election. How does God get the gospel to the ears of the elect? How does he do this? He does it through prayer. Look at 1 Thessalonians 3, 2 Thessalonians 3, rather. A few verses away. Verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us. And what's the prayer request? That the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. He's saying pray that the gospel proclamation could be connected to the elect. Election reminds the church that evangelism is participation in a completely God-initiated work. It's his initiation. We're guaranteed success that when God connects the gospel with the elect unbeliever, salvation will occur. How many of the elect will be saved? All of them. This is why I love being a pastor, because preaching the gospel is like shooting fish in a barrel. It will be effective. One more side note. The doctrine of election has tremendous benefits for the believer. The doctrine of election has tremendous benefits for the believer. The doctrine of election is so useful it crushes any pride that might say I had something to do with God's choice. God gets all the glory. God gets all the exaltation. It produces joy because we rejoice in the Lord. It produces motivation toward holiness in the lives of the saved. Did you know that? The fact that you were humbly chosen, it produces this motive to obey. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 12, says, Put on then... As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Why can the Lord say you must forgive? 
because he forgave you before you even knew you needed it. That's our motive. So we have the doctrine of grace, the doctrine of election. Keep flying over here. The doctrine of regeneration. The doctrine of regeneration. We see this in verse 13. Because God chose you from the beginning, we'll say, to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. Now, this is the setting apart of the elect to be saved. Small problem. The elect don't want to be saved because we were spiritually blind and deaf and mute. Ephesians 2 says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So what's the answer? The Spirit of God sets us apart, sanctifies us. It means to be made holy, to be set aside, to be made different, to be other. Now, sanctification also includes the continuing idea of being more obedient to the Lord in your walk with Christ. We'll look at that in a few minutes. But in this context, this is specific to the action of the Holy Spirit to provide regeneration, to change your heart, to open your spiritual eyes, to unstop your spiritual ears, to open your spiritual mouth. But how does the Holy Spirit set apart those who are spiritually dead? Jesus uses a word picture that's so memorable to tell us this truth. In John 3, verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit of God sets us apart by giving us spiritual life, which is what Jesus said is being born again. You don't pray to be born again. If you were praying to be born again, you've already been born again. It's not something you decide to do. It's not something that when the preacher begs you, you decide being born again is solely something the Spirit of God does, and it has nothing to do with you asking or not. The wind blows where it wishes, meaning the Spirit regenerates those whom He wishes. This is what Paul speaks of in Ephesians 2, verse 5, that God made us alive. That the Spirit of God transforms you, changes you, and He generates then and allows in your heart something necessary for salvation, and that is faith. And that's our next doctrine, the doctrine of faith. Verse 13 continues. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, you cannot come to faith in Christ without having faith in Christ. Regeneration carries the idea of authorizing, permitting, and what exactly is being permitted to know the truth of the gospel, to have faith, to have the belief that is necessary. And how do we get this? Well, we get it as a free gift from God. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12, very poignant verse. The Apostle Paul says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. It's freely given. It's the idea of generous giving. When the Holy Spirit regenerates, He gives us the ability and the permission, the authorization to understand these things freely given by God. In other words, the the spigot of understanding is opened and truth gushes into your heart like a flood. Oh, God is holy. I'm a depraved sinner. Jesus Christ is the son of the living God who came to earth, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on the cross to pay for my sin, was raised three days, proving his payment to be sufficient. He ascended into heaven where even now he's advocating before the Father. This makes sense. I get it. I believe. The Spirit of God is changing me. 
And I believe what formerly was foolishness to me. You ever listen to unbelievers try to explain the Bible? It comes off as foolishness because they don't have the Spirit. And the Bible now begins to come alive as the living and active double-edged sword that it is, the very Word of God itself. You can see the disgusting reproach and offense of your own sin. You believe. You have faith. I've had the privilege on a number of occasions to, I, I think, witness the moment of faith when somebody's realization of their own sin comes across their face and there's, there's shock, there's disgust, there's dismay, there's, there's horror. Faith is necessary for salvation. Our classic passage from Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Faith is a gift. It's something He gave you, not a result of works so that no one may boast. But it's not blind faith. Some have said, I don't want to have blind faith. It's not blind faith at all. You have the Bible giving you and assuring you of the truth. You have the internal witness of the Holy Spirit assuring you of the truth. You have millions upon millions of believers for 2,000 years assuring you of the truth. You have the eagerness, the zeal, the excitement, the fervor. I love seeing new believers with bloodshot eyes. Say, what happened to you? I've been up all night reading the Bible. I can't stop. I don't know what's going on. And now you wanted to become a child of God. You want to be His forever. Some have said, well, if I'm elect, that means God drags me into the kingdom. Yes, He does. But as you're going over the finish line, you look around and go, oh, I want this. I want this. John 1.12, Jesus said, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John said that, rather. He gave the right to become children of God. And now, because of grace, election, regeneration, and faith, you have a right to become God's child. What were you waiting for? You didn't even know what you were waiting for. What you were waiting for was God to call out to you. You were waiting to, in your spirit, hear the voice of God. And this brings us to the doctrine of divine calling. The doctrine of divine calling. Verse 14. To this he called you through our gospel. What is this? It is the process of salvation described above. Grace, election, regeneration, faith. Now, there's a distinction between what some some have called the universal call to salvation and the specific call to salvation. I want to address this for a moment. The universal call is external it's outward it's heard with the ears or it's read with the eyes it's the summons and the invitation to salvation it's a presentation of the problem of sin and the separation from god and christ as the means to come to faith and repentance there is a certain promise of mercy a certain promise of pardon from sin Jesus issued a universal call a general call repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand he said that to anyone who would listen he said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The apostles issued the universal call. Peter was preaching to the council of Jerusalem, supposedly on trial, but he preached a sermon instead. Acts 4, beginning of verse 11. 
He said, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is a universal call. But the universal call can be rejected. It can be resisted. Stephen condemned this same council of Jerusalem in Acts 7.51. He said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Speaking of entering into the rest, the restfulness of salvation in Christ, the writer of Hebrews spoke of those who refuse. In Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 6, he says, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's a universal call. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The universal call to salvation is completely legitimate. And yes, it lines up with election. The invitation is true. It is completely sincere. Acts 2.21 says, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. As a preacher of the gospel, it's my duty to issue a universal call. Some would say that's my only duty, to proclaim the gospel to all who will hear. But then we get over to the special call, and now that leaves humanity out of the equation. The special call is God's domain alone. The special call is internal. It's effectual, meaning it's capable, it's efficient, it's powerful. This is the calling here that Paul is speaking of. To this, he called you through our gospel. The calling of God is connected to the preaching of the gospel. This is God's means to the call. The internal specific call is given through the means of the universal general call. You heard the good news that Jesus Christ died for your sins and wants to bring you into his kingdom. You heard the gospel from a friend. Maybe you heard the gospel from a family member. Maybe from your mom and dad or in a sermon or in a book or maybe just reading your Bible. You came to comprehend the gospel and maybe the first time you didn't get it. Second time you didn't get it. Third time you didn't get it. But at some point as the information was going into you, at some point God called out, come here to me. And your heart was opened and you ran to the cross. Your stubborn will had been softened, your darkened mind illumined. And like Thomas, when he saw the nail marks on his Lord, he said, my Lord and my God. He recognized Jesus. Jesus explained the divine calling, the effectual or special call of God to the elect. He said in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And like regeneration, the divine calling has a a permission nuance to it. In John 6, 65, Jesus said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. It's not a decision you make. It's something that is granted by God. And how did God call you? Verse 14, to this he called you through our gospel. Let me travel back to the doctrine of election just for one moment. Some will say that the doctrine of election, again, undermines and minimizes the great commission And evangelism, it's just the opposite. The doctrine of election makes evangelism vital because it's the means by which God calls us to himself through the hearing of the gospel. There is an inextricable link between election and calling. And that link that puts them together is 
the gospel of Christ. And the, the elect always respond. They always respond. King David said in Psalm 65 verse 4, Blessed is the one you chose and bring near. Both. Blessed is the one you chose and bring near. Speaking of himself as the true shepherd, Jesus said in John 10, 3 and 4, The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. They know his voice. There is no such thing as an elect person who will not receive Christ. So by God's grace, you were chosen, regenerated, given faith to believe in the truth. You heard the divine call of God. But what's the human response to the divine call? What is our response? This brings us to the doctrine of conversion. The doctrine of conversion. Verse 14, he says, To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. May obtain is a noun translated as a verb It means for the possession of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's translated as a verb because it's the act of acquiring something. It's the act of gaining possession of something. And what is that? We're gaining possession of the glory of Christ. Now, this doesn't imply human achievement or, or deeds, but it is the willing response of the believing heart that's been opened by the Lord to the already enacted divine choice and empowering by the Spirit to respond to the call of God. In other words, God started this whole process and enabled you to come to a point to come to Him. Still Him doing everything. And so what is the natural and necessary response of the one who has heard the call of God in the heart and yet still knows sin must be dealt with? The natural response is to change your mind about your sin. To stop being loyal to your sin. Stop being loyal to yourself. To turn away from your love of sin and turn to the love of Christ. Now these concepts don't imply that sinlessness is somehow necessary to come to faith. What it does imply is what Jesus said in Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In other words, it's necessary to convert from worshiping self to worshiping God. That is the doctrine of conversion. In fact, that ability to repent, that ability to bend the knee to God, to express your sorrow over your sin and to deeply yearn and desire for Christ-likeness, this is a gift from God as well, even though it's a human response. It's a gift from God. Jeremiah 31.18 speaks of conversion, of changing direction, of repenting. And it says in Jeremiah 31.18, "...bring me back that I may be restored." For you are the Lord my God. This is a play on words in Hebrew. It literally says, turn me back and I will be turned. Who's doing the turning? God is. Who's responsible to do the turning? You are. But thankfully God is doing the turning. But you must repent. Speaking of national Israel's eventual repentance, Zechariah 12.10 famously says that God grants the spirit of prayerful repentance He says, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Did you notice that? A spirit of grace and a spirit of pleading to God for mercy is poured out by God. 
So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, that is Christ, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Listen, one of the elements of repentance, one of the elements of conversion is that dawning realization that you have not been worshiping the God who deserves worship. And that you look back on every day, week, month, and year of your life that you have ignored the God who deserves you to bend your knee. It is a plea for mercy and you weep over this. Conversion is the God-given response to His divine call. I don't know about you, but the next logical question for me would be, but is it going to last? Will I stay converted? Will I stay saved? Will I be sweating this thing out until my final breath? Well, that brings us to the doctrine of perseverance. The doctrine of perseverance in verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, seeing the doctrines of election and regeneration and faith, divine calling and conversion, you might expect, Paul, that the next thing he's going to say is, so relax, guys, take it easy, kick back, you're in. But he doesn't. Instead, he says, stand firm. It's a word that means to continue where you are. Don't move. Hold, he says. Hold to the traditions. It means to seize something, to grab it, to retain it, to keep it. I like playing with little bitty kids and they grab a hold of your leg and you just kind of walk and drag them along. That's what hold is. They're not letting go for any reason. In the hurricanes of spiritual danger all around us as the spirit of Antichrist is even now fleeing himself against the world and against you, we're to stand our ground in the faith. We're to hold. We're to cling to the only thing which is solid and secure. That is Christ our Savior. And what is it that we hold to? The traditions that you were taught by us. Now, what is this? Traditions is a derivative of the Greek word that just means the instructions. Now, this this phrase isn't an argument for church tradition being equal in authority to Scripture. It's not saying that at all. Paul taught with apostolic authority, which doesn't exist today. He would never say that tradition is equal to Scripture. In fact, elsewhere he preaches against that. In fact, to say that we also have traditions of the apostles and subsequent church fathers as equal to Scripture is to violate exactly what Paul is saying not to do. Hold to the traditions taught to us, how? By our spoken word or by our letter. By the word of God given in the New Testament. We have a completed, inspired, inerrant Bible. And so the traditions Paul is speaking of is very simply held in your hand. These are the traditions, the Bible. Holding to the authority and the veracity of Scripture is evidence of genuine salvation. You hold to the truth, a continuing desire to obey the Lord in His Word. 1 John 2, 5, John says, But whoever keeps His Word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. And so the doctrine of perseverance says that by God's power, we are enabled to become more and more Christ-like, to resist evil, to hold to what is good, to remain unconquered. Now, while perseverance is by the power of God, we do have responsibility. We have responsibility. We're to heed the warnings of Scripture against falling away. If we weren't to heed those, there wouldn't be so many of them. We're to pray in utter dependence on the Lord. We're to struggle against sin. We're to rely on the Holy Spirit. We are in a spiritual battle. And there's a connection to the doctrine of election in that election can only be 
demonstrated by its impact on human behavior. Did you catch that? Election can only be demonstrated by its impact on human behavior. The free grace theology, which says that good works aren't necessary as a proof of faith, well, that's taken away literally the only proof of faith. That's the only one. What does it mean when somebody says, I am a Christian? It means they just spoke four words. I am a Christian. That doesn't mean anything. The proof of faith is your life. The elect can only be known by their lives. James said it this way in James 2.18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will, ready for this, show you my faith by my works. In other words, look at my life. John the Baptist said it this way in Luke 3, 9. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. We don't bear spiritual fruit and demonstrate increasing holiness in order to humanly keep our salvation. We bear spiritual fruit because we are saved. And yet the New Testament gives a clear responsibility. John the Baptist said in Matthew 3, 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. That's our responsibility. Now, if we stopped right there, that's a little bit discouraging and kind of scary because there's a flip side to perseverance. What makes perseverance possible? And that is the doctrine of preservation. The doctrine of preservation. Verse 16 says that the Lord Jesus... And God, our Father, gave us eternal comfort. Now, there's a little grammatical question here. Is this comfort about eternity, or is it comfort that is eternal, that goes on forever? Well, it doesn't matter because the effect is the same. The possession of the believer that's contrasted with the terrifying guesswork of the unbeliever who has no idea what's going to happen to his future, our possession is certainty and eternal comfort. Yes, it's comfort about eternity, and it is also eternal comfort. And here's our comfort. 1 John 5, verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave, past tense, gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Can you imagine if John had written... I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may be reasonably certain that you have eternal life. What? No, no, no. That you may know that you have eternal life. That's eternal comfort. That's eternal comfort. The grace of God is not just to save us and then let us dangle in emotional and spiritual limbo in some sort of lottery that maybe I can have assurance. What does that always lead to, by the way? It always leads to good works salvation. That I better do more. The last words of 18th century American Puritan pastor and theologian, Jonathan Edwards, he was just 54 years old when he passed away, and yet really, to this day, the greatest American theologian of all time. But on his deathbed, he spoke to his daughter, Lucy, who attended him, and at the very end, he said, As to my children, who are now to be left fatherless, which I hope will be an inducement to all of you to seek a father who will never fail you. Edward's last words on this earth just moments before meeting the Heavenly Father was on the topic of the doctrine of preservation. A father who will never fail you. But can God just decide to give you salvation and 
keep your salvation for no reason whatsoever. No, that would actually make you an unjust God. So what's the basis upon which God decides to preserve your salvation, to preserve my salvation? That brings us to the doctrine of justification. Justification. Now again, this is based now on the eternal comfort. In verse 16, he gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. To be justified means to be acquitted of your sin. It means to be pronounced worthy as Christ. To be as worthy as Christ. Now, is there double jeopardy? Is God going to go back and review my case? Is he going to go back and say, yeah, I saved him 50 years ago, but this guy's been a real jerk ever since then. Or will I always be justified in the eyes of God? God exchanges our filthy life for the perfect life of Christ, and by faith we're credited with the perfection of Christ. And the question is, is this forever? Yes, because of eternal comfort. Eternal comfort. And so what are the results of justification? We could spend all night just on this, but here's a few results of justification. Permanent forgiveness of all sin. Permanent forgiveness of all sin. Acts 13, 38 says that through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. It is decreed. It is set out. It's laid forth. Another result, condemnation is taken away. It's taken away. John 5, 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You will never, ever, ever be condemned for your sin. God will never bring them up to you again for all eternity. It's another result, the gift of eternal life. The gift of eternal life. If you are as righteous as Christ, then you may do that which Christ does, which is to be in the presence of his Father for all time. Titus 3, 7 says that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Justification leads to the natural result of living forever with God. We get another result, reconciliation between you and God. Reconciliation between you and God. Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It's not talking about the emotion of peace. It's not talking about the nice feeling of peace. It's talking about the, the state of not being at war with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Another result, we have adoption into God's family. The whole concept of adoption is founded in God's grace toward us. Romans 8.15 says, We receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father. Verse 17 says, Now we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Oh, justification is so glorious. Permanent forgiveness of sin. Condemnation taken away. The gift of eternal life. Reconciliation between you and God. Adoption into God's family. God can give you eternal comfort because your justification is eternal. You will, for all eternity, be viewed by God as being just as righteous as Christ. Given the fact that we've all sinned about 200,000 times today already, that's a pretty amazing thought, isn't it? But how is your justification brought about? How could you be viewed by God as, as righteous as Christ? That brings us to the doctrine of atonement. The doctrine of atonement, the end of verse 16, the beginning of verse 17 says that we have good hope through grace because of this comfort your hearts and establish them. We have good hope through grace. Now it's interesting that Paul uses a cultural phrase that the Thessalonians would have been familiar with. In in Hellenistic 
uh, Greek culture, good hope was a phrase that pagans used to speak of, guess what, life after death. But of course, their good hope was baseless. It was a desperate shot in the dark. If God is eternally offended by our sin, and if Christ paid the price with his life that covered that eternal offense, then the assurance we need is that the payment will always be covered. The payment will always be covered. James 2.10 says that if we violated one of God's laws, we're guilty of all. So let me ask you this theoretical question. What if Christ's death, extremely effective, paid for one million of your sins? And in prayer one night, you're asking the Lord for a revelation. What number am I on, Lord? And to your horror, a voice from the darkness says 999,996. I have four left. Well, in that case, maybe you'd better stay away from everyone. Well, wait a minute. That violates Proverbs 18.1. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. That's a sin. Three left. Oh, no, I need to come up with a better idea. Wait, that violates Proverbs 3.5. Do not lean on your understanding. That's a sin. Two left. Okay, I'll just tell everyone I'm sick. Wait a minute. That violates Ephesians 4.25. Let each of you speak truth with his neighbor. That's a sin. I've got one left. Nobody move. What a terrible feeling that would be. No, you need good hope that doesn't keep count. The assurance that your sin is completely paid for. This is the doctrine of the atonement. That whatever sin you bring to the cross will be covered by the blood of Christ. Christ, as your substitute, took the entire penalty for all your sin. Incidentally, all the sins you haven't yet committed either. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who has hanged on a tree. He took the entirety of the curse of God that was rightly due to us. It never runs out. Atonement never runs out. It doesn't have an expiration date. And how do we know that his payment was sufficient? Because Jesus rose from the dead. The check cleared. The bowl of God's wrath against you was poured completely on Christ. It was emptied. It was expended. The grace of God was completed in you because the wrath of God was completed in Christ. And now because of the atonement, you can enjoy the doctrine of union with Christ. The doctrine of union with Christ. Again, verse 16, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. We have this hope. This is a phenomenal statement here. That we are in Christ. We are in him. Jesus himself, the one who said he would be the judge of all things, has along with the Father loved us. He's given us eternal comfort. He's given us a good hope. And this can only be if we're now in a unique, special, untouchable relationship with Christ. We're said in the New Testament dozens of times to be in Christ, in union with Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We're one body in Christ. We're sanctified in Christ. Grace was given to us in Christ. In Adam all die, and in Christ we live. In Christ we're a new creation. In Christ we're sons and daughters of God. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places are ours in Christ. We've been seated in the heavenly places in Christ. Dozens of times we're in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. You're forever linked to him. First Thessalonians 4 tells us 
that we will always be with the Lord. You've never seen Christ, and yet you're in Christ. And in fact, it's being in Christ that leads to our next doctrine of grace. Ephesians 2.10 says we are created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That brings us to the doctrine of sanctification. The doctrine of sanctification. Verse 17, comfort your hearts and establish them. How? In every good work and word. Having given comfort, the end result, the outcome of this comfort is to be established, literally strengthened. In what? In doing and saying that which is good and pleasing to the Lord. We were set apart. We were born again, justified. This is our what some call positional sanctification. Your standing before God. We will be made like Christ when we see him. That is our future sanctification, our future perfection. But now, at this time, the evidence of our salvation is that God is establishing us in good works and words. Not that we're somehow earning our continued salvation, but simply that our lives are bearing the fruit of the change affected by the Holy Spirit. And as those who have been set apart by God, we've been given a litmus test of salvation. Jesus gave this litmus test in John 15, a good tree bears good fruit. John said it this way in 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in him, that is in Christ, ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. Remember, the Great Commission is not go and make converts who will check off a box and say, okay, I'm a Christian now. No, it says make disciples, make learners to do what? To obey all that I have commanded you. The New Testament does not recognize the category of Christian who has no desire to obey Christ. That is not, by definition, a Christian. And as we look continually to the help of the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ, we have something to look forward to that is beyond comprehension, and that is the doctrine of glorification. The doctrine of glorification. Verse 14 What is it we're said to possess, to obtain through election, regeneration, faith, divine calling? We obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does this mean exactly? In Paul's writings, glory that we receive is almost always speaking of our final resurrection from the dead. And the function of this noun glory in this case means glory like that which Jesus possesses, like he has. Philippians 3.21, Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 1 Thessalonians 2.12 tells us that our calling to salvation includes being called to his own kingdom and glory. That we receive the glory of Christ. And in fact, that's that's the happy goal. That's the happy desire of every Christian Paul said in Romans 2, 7 that the believer is seeking and looking forward to glory and honor and immortality and eternal life. That's our aim. That's our goal. That's our hope. When we live in a world that's disgusting, that is difficult, you wake up some days saying, Lord, just bring me home. We look forward to glory. And because of this, the, the doctrines of grace and election and regeneration and faith and divine calling and conversion and perseverance and preservation and justification and atonement and union with Christ and sanctification are all aimed at glorification. That's the end result. That God will finish what he started. He will get you home to him. 
for all eternity. That's the gospel. It is not Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, although that is true, but that's not the gospel. It is your duty, it is mine, to be the carriers of the Great Commission. And if you'll be saturated in the glorious gospel, in all its delights, all its wonder, then you and I will be infinitely more effective in carrying out these marching orders from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We won't experience the frustration of not knowing what to say. And so armed with these truths, we can receive the blessing and the prayer of the Apostle Paul at the very end of Romans. Listen to this. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God. Be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. And we could join the Apostle Paul as saying, Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, help us to get the gospel right. Help us never to denigrate your character by presenting anything less than the glories of the cross, anything less than the glories of justification, which is eternal, anything less than the glories of election, which is the ultimate demonstration of your grace, that you would choose sinners before they were even born to receive salvation. Lord, for one hearing this message who perhaps does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, may this be the moment, the moment of regeneration when his or her eyes are opened, ears unstopped, to hear the truth and their tongue is unstopped to proclaim faith in Christ. May the gospel of Jesus Christ go forth into the world. May you connect the elect with the gospel until that day, as Jesus said in the Gospel of John, all of your sheep come in. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.